Welcome back to Wake Up New York, a Sunrise NYC podcast, the show that highlights New York City-specific politics, policy, and the road towards a Green New Deal. I'm your host, Jenna. And I'm Paola. Last week, we spoke about the Good Jobs for All campaign and why we're working so hard to push Congress to pass a jobs guarantee that would put people to work combating the climate crisis. This week, we're going to keep chatting about this fight. We'll touch on the work we have done and the work we have left to do, and what it's going to take to pass legislation for Good Jobs for All and create a civilian climate corps that will work to save our home. So let's dive right in and learn more, starting with an explanation from Syracuse University professor Matt Huber about the theory of change, that is, how and why we can achieve the changes we need, and how it's going to help us win a Green New Deal. What was very exciting about the Green New Deal theory of change was that it was very simple, that if you start to pass policies that improve people's material lives on under the banner of climate action, you might start to realign the political system. Because again, people don't have any evidence over the last several decades that uh, policies do improve their lives or that the government can help them. People are just feel like they're on their own and they have to survive as isolated individuals. Of course, it's a chicken and egg thing. It's like we have to actually get those material improvements first to start to build that popular support. That's why I think if even a little bit comes out of this infrastructure spending, we want to really make it visible that this is what climate action looks like. Sort of amazing things about the original New Deal was that these things were, you know, announced and starting to get implemented in 1933. By 1936, you know, FDR was able to pull off one of the largest landslides in political history in this country. You know, he became one of the most popular presidents in our history. Uh, You know, he literally won all but two states in 1936. It just built up this incredible popularity in a rapid time just because They were using public power to improve people's lives at a rapid clip. I mean, we've actually seen this over the last year. The stimulus checks, you know, were issued extremely rapidly. And once people saw those in their bank accounts, they were like one of the most popular policies that have been passed in recent years. Professor Huber, whose writing and research focuses on the intersection of climate politics, economy and class, believes that the most effective way to build popular support for a political program is to highlight the results. If the political results are there, the people will follow. We got to stop thinking we're going to win climate action by this kind of moral superiority of knowing the science and, and knowing the direness of the science and explaining how the greenhouse effect works to people. Again, that's not going to resonate with people. People want to know how are they going to feed their families? How are they going to pay the electricity bill? How are they going to pay for rent and heat and and, and what's so amazing about the potential of this kind of politics is that almost everything that people need in their lives needs to be decarbonized. They need food, they need energy, they need housing. And all these sectors, if we could start to build a politics around those sectors that, that linked improving people's access to energy, food, housing under the banner of climate action, then perhaps you start to build up that 
that popular support, but you have to start. <laughs> and, and again, I think the masses of people haven't seen enough evidence that we've even started with that kind of politics yet. Obviously, we're in this very uh, dicey political moment, but insofar as Sunrise and other social movements that are pushing for sort of radical public investment in climate infrastructure, when those policies start hitting the ground, when they actually start impacting rural communities, poor urban communities, I think we really have to do the work to kind of make clear to people that these things that people see in their lives that are improving their lives is climate policy. <laughs> that is something that the, the government is doing to use the power of the public sector to solve this existential crisis. And then I think when people start to associate climate action with these very clear, easy to understand material improvements in their communities and their lives, climate action will become more popular. Sounds familiar? That's because it sounds a lot like how we talk about a Green New Deal and why it's essential not only for fighting the climate crisis, but for convincing people that action is needed and that that action can be turned into tangible good in every aspect of people's lives. But what's our role as organizers in getting a Green New Deal, including campaigns like Good Jobs for All, enacted? How can we create this necessary change? Congressman Espayat, the U.S. representative for much of Upper Manhattan and the West Bronx, says the first step is putting pressure on the politicians that need convincing. As we debate green initiatives, we need to be part of the effort to move those legislators that are not there, that are thinking in very conventional ways, to come our way. I think it's critical that we know and we're laser focused in, in, in making sure that we contact those legislators that need convincing. Let's not preach to the choir. I know we need to ensure that the choir is there for us, but uh, let's be very clear and focused on who it is that we need to convince, and let's take them there. There's a growing movement in support of the Good Jobs for All and Climate Civilian Corps campaigns. However, organizers are faced with many obstacles. Vikas, an organizer with Sunrise NYC leading efforts on Good Jobs for All, sees issues with political structure and individual politicians themselves. Joe Biden negotiated with uh, Republicans and Exxon lobbyists to come up with a bipartisan infrastructure deal that stripped out most of the climate provisions. We were very frustrated by that. And so Sunrise Movement showed up in D.C. with 500 or more people and blockaded the White House. Folks got arrested, made a big splash in the news. AOC, Jamal Bowman, Cori Bush were there. And we made it very clear, along with dozens of others in elected office, the federal level, that we will not stand for an infrastructure bill that does not address climate change the way we need to. So we already have seen President Biden and the White House walking back the amount that they have sacrificed those priorities. You know, we will continue putting pressure on the White House to actually be leaders on that front. A lot has happened since we've recorded this episode. Last week, we saw the Senate pass the infrastructure bill, and now that is moving to a vote in the House. But as Vika says, the infrastructure bill is missing a lot of the climate components that it originally had because President Biden gave into Republican pressure and negotiated away a lot of key climate legislation. The next legislation that holds hope for a CCC and big climate investments is a funding bill that Congress is trying to pass through reconciliation. 
at the congressional level, there is a process called reconciliation in which as long as 50% plus one of members of Congress vote in each house for a bill, if it's a funding bill, then they can bypass the filibuster requirement. Now, I believe we should just remove the filibuster uh, for, for stuff like this, but our esteemed federal legislators do not agree at this point. Uh, so they are releasing reconciliation packages for infrastructure. And those are where we have more opportunity to actually put in the climate investment that we need, such as a, a civilian climate core. And so the big win is we've put a lot of pressure, specifically in New York, on our senator and also the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, to f- support a bold, big, ambitious civilian climate corps on the order of magnitude of creating over a million jobs. On July 7th, uh, Senator Schumer came out in support of a civilian climate corps, and not only that, specifically called out Sunrise Movement for pushing him to come out for it and saying that we were the ones who convinced him of this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And that's, that's really exciting. So it is going to end up in the infrastructure package that he puts out, and we are going to continue working with him to ensure that it is fully funded and that it actually is big enough and uh, powerful enough of a, of a program to actually solve the, the various crises we're in. In some ways, the biggest impact organizers need to make is to influence certain lawmakers away from pandering to fossil fuel billionaires and corporate interests. Of course, there's, there's obstacles. Most of the obstacles revolve around billionaires and corporate interests uh, wanting to maintain their power and their uh, exploitive system that they benefit from, while the rest of us have to suffer. So just like how in the last year, they have gotten by an order of magnitude richer while the rest of us has suffered, they want us to continue doing that into the future. And so they're already doing everything they can to prevent a passage of a package like this. So an executive at at Exxon was caught on camera talking about how they have certain senators on on their uh, speed dial that they call up to muddy the waters on climate. And that includes, you know, Senator Kirsten Sinema, who has been not the most vocal proponent of necessary climate legislation, and also Joe Manchin. They in fact called Joe Manchin their kingmaker in the Senate. And so we have to we have to keep pushing Democrats across the country, including Cinema, including Manchin, but also everyone else in the Senate and House to not be like them and to to effectively shame them into uh, supporting the legislation that young people need to protect our futures. And we will do that. We're we're already doing. The pressure required is massive, and we need everyone possible involved. How do we get more people active in organizing against fossil fuel interests and for the change that we need? Well, I think we need to be imaginative and we need to be bold in our action. And unfortunately, some people are confined to thinking that way. 
and, and as a result, uh, think in very conventional ways, uh, traditional ways, because of that, are so like left behind. I think we need to be bold, we need to be uh, innovative, and we need to think not just about the present, but the future as well, and ensure that we have this corp that will engage you know, young people and seniors and folks all over our communities to be educated and to be part of the climate solution, not just um, an expectator or someone sitting on the bench watching what's happening across their neighborhoods. The Civilian Climate Corps is really, really inspiring. Like everyone I talk to, you know, once they get a chance to really sit with the idea of like what it could look like if we, you know, had a massive jobs program to solve society's problems, people are really jazzed and people feel hopeful in a way that few things give hope nowadays. We need to bring that message to, you know, every little community in the country. And there's a lot of ways to do that. So getting involved with Sunrise, you'll, you'll see that there are the rallies and the protests. Those things make the news a lot. But, you know, there's also programs to help you organize a teaching in your community. You know, that's a presentation, you know, maybe cater some food, have some speakers and, and talk about, you know, what Good Jobs for All would mean for your community. And I think it, it takes all of those different ways of organizing. And so whichever aspect of that is inspiring or exciting to you, there is a place for you to do it. Mia, an 18-year-old organizer with Sunrise, agrees with Vikas. Go to an action. They're so fun. Whatever the next action is. So I joined Sunrise last summer. I created my own hub. Super cool, super stressful, but got a lot out of it. And that's when I really started to like participate in Sunrise and all the actions. I went to the DC action on July 28th and then the New York City Schumer action in front of his office July 1st. And I got arrested. Crazy. Never thought that would happen. All of that to say, actions are super powerful. Senator Schumer said he would support the CCC. And I almost cried when I read that tweet. I was like, oh my God, we did it. But yeah, go to an action because they're super powerful. They're a way to create community, to meet people, and to get involved with the movement if you don't know where to start and if you're new to one. The go to a sunrise action, the next one that's happening. I don't know when it is, but go to it. Matt agrees that movements, specifically Sunrise, have been instrumental in pushing the Biden administration to embrace and build climate action. He reiterates that it's also the role of organizers to communicate these political initiatives in order to build popular support. We should be aware that there were some missteps in the kind of rollout of the Green New Deal um, in 2019. Very early on in spring 2019, you know, the AFL-CIO came out nationally and kind of opposed the Green New Deal and said it was unrealistic and, you know, it's radical or whatever. But they also said that no one really asked us about this, this, this program. And so the kind of forces behind AOC and, and, and think tanks like New Consensus and the Sunrise Movement, I think, probably need to do more work to kind of get the unions on board and supportive of this policy from the get-go. And actually, we have examples of what that looks like in other contexts. There's a great effort in the state I'm in called Climate Jobs New York, where they have really, from the ground up, tried to build basically union participation and envisioning policies that would basically center union jobs in the build out of clean infrastructure. 
And it was, you know, really putting the unions at the start of the conversation from the get-go. And another example is in Maine in the spring of 2019, they were able to pass pretty transformative state legislation that they called a Green New Deal, but they got the AFL-CIO in Maine to support this legislation because they, from the start, really had the unions um, on board and in conversation and, and a part of envisioning what the policy was going to look like, at least from a kind of a socialist perspective, the working class is not the agent of change because they're the most oppressed class or because they're morally superior to all of us. It's it's simply because of their strategic location in the workplace that gives them this power. That has, has really nothing to do with how good or how moral the working class is. It just has to do with structural power in the workplace. In Buffalo, um, the amazing campaign of India Walton in her victory speech said, we are the workers, we do the work. <laughs> and that's the core of that structural power. They do do the work. And if they don't do the work, it creates a crisis very quickly. And I think we saw quite in, at an inspiring scale, the youth climate movement trying to use the strike tactic with the school strikes. Mm -hmm. But we also saw that that didn't have the same strategic capacity to really create a kind of crisis that could spur massive radical change like a labor strike could. Now, if those students were able to get the teachers involved too and really start doing things like the West Virginia teachers did where they were shutting down school districts uh, and not just on Fridays, but for weeks, then you can start talking. Working class and labor has this very specific power that in a capitalist system, they alone have. And that's why we, we focus on them. For many reasons, the most instrumental group within the working class are labor unions. Their support for political campaigns is vital. Professor Huber argues that it is also in our union's best interests to support the good job for all campaign. In the face of declining union membership, these policies would support and further demand project labor agreements that require a project to use union labor. This would mean a significant increase in union contracts and an expansion of union membership. Additionally, he believes that this campaign, in combination with policies like the PRO Act, could be the basis of a massive expansion of the union movement, especially in sectors that are mostly controlled by private capital, including renewable energy. We actually have to make the case to the unions that it's actually an existential threat to them that if they don't get organized on this Green New Deal, or let's just say this energy transition, that they could be left in the dust by, I would call it a voracious kind of green capitalism that, that basically hands over the energy transition to private renewable capital that is very hostile to unions. And so the only chance I think we have to sort of build out unions with the Green New Deal is to make sure that those investments I would, again, hope their public investments mandate and ensure that uh, union contracts, project labor agreements come with them. To start getting unions on board, Professor Huber believes the most effective way is a grassroots, bottom-up approach, which can rapidly catalyze change. We need to sort of articulate a, a rank-and-file union strategy for the climate movement that is about really trying to build the, the members, the workers in these unions to buy into the necessity of, of climate action. For a variety of reasons, I think a lot of union leaders and union strategists realize that we can't radicalize all unions all the time. We need to be strategic. 
about which unions we focus on. And, you know, someone like Jane McAlevey has really argued persuasively that for the labor movement as a whole, we really should strategically focus on healthcare and education. But for climate, I think the sector that we really need to focus on is electricity <laughs> because it's literally the, the sector at what many climate scientists would call the, the linchpin of decarbonization. Because if we don't clean up electricity, we can't so-called electrify everything and, and, and really decarbonize the rest of our energy system without this clean electricity sector. But the very interesting thing about the electricity sector is it's one of the most unionized in the entire economy. The electric utility sector has unionization rates up upwards of 25%, whereas at, an, at the economy, it's more like 10%. So there's actually already been efforts uh, by some members in the unions that represent electricity workers, like the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, to really start working on what they call a rank and file strategy for a Green New Deal in the IBEW, in the Utility Workers Union of America, we could start working in these sectors and trying to kind of build a rank and file movement within these unions themselves. And, um, and again, this, this is hard work. It, it's not a shortcut. It's not gonna happen as rapidly as we need it. But in some ways, sometimes when we think about climate action, it becomes so overwhelming that we have to change everything as Naomi Klein said, we have to change all of society all at once. To me, the idea of radically transforming these relatively small electrical utility unions seems a little less daunting to me um, and something that we should at least consider. Because for all the talk in the climate movement of public power and public electricity, there's really not been enough outreach and focus on engaging with these workers and unions that are deeply embedded in the electricity sector that could have a lot of power to help us transform it. Together, we have the power to rapidly transform sectors of industry, society, and our economy to address the wide-ranging impacts of climate change. And on an individual level, as organizers and people who care deeply about solving this crisis, we have to wonder, what do we look forward to? What does a future look like where we have good jobs for all, pass a civilian climate corps, and mobilize our society to combat the climate crisis? I'm hearing all these things going into college, which is like, you know, you need to do something that makes you happy, but also earns you money. And you need to do something where you can live a fruitful life, but also have a stable income. And I think that was always like a, a norm for me, but I never considered doing something I love. Like I, I couldn't imagine that future for myself just because I've been told all my life that like I have to sacrifice one or the other going into college I'm like I don't know what major I want because I want to get good money and have a secure job but also want to do the things I love and I think for now you know learning about good jobs for all learning about the CCC learning about all these things that can be put in place to make kind of life better having that right in front of me right now it allows me to see that Good Jobs for All would allow people, you know, your children, your sisters, your brothers, anyone in your life to do the things they love in a productive, green way. So what is Mia's job with the Civilian Climate Corps? I've thought about this so much. <laughs> um, my dream CCC job is probably something in filmmaking. 
or teaching, maybe a combination of the two. For the longest time, my dream job was being an art teacher, exploring the world through art and and helping younger kids do the same thing. And I think creating like your version of the world on a piece of paper and, and or any other medium, that would be my dream job to do that every day. <laughs> I only recently realized that like if we pass a CCC that is that is like as transformational as I hope, I think I would quit my job and like join the CCC. Like I, I, I'm fairly certain I would do that. I just think that there's so much opportunity to create a better world and what I would want to do. So I, I talked earlier about, you know, when I was younger, I wanted to be a teacher. You know, that didn't pan out because I wanted um, more safety and security for my for my own life. Um, and I don't, I, I guess I don't really want to be a teacher anymore. Um, what I What I would really love to do is to work on regenerative agriculture um, or regenerative farming because I the more I learn about the world around me like even my tiny little backyard I can tell how how much this exploitive mindset has influenced even the the types of plants we choose to to plant and the types of uh, pesticides we use and the sense that we need to control everything has actually caused most of the problems that we face, you know, in a backyard setting, but also as a society. I would love to maybe combine those two interests to teach about permaculture, teach about the importance of pollinators and create community gardens and, and stuff like that for not only kids, but like for the wider community. I think that would be just the most incredible job. We will achieve the promises of good jobs for all. It won't be easy and much of the fight is still ahead of us. But together, we are moving forward, accomplishing this vital aspect of a Green New Deal, not just in New York, but across the country. Organizers everywhere are working around the clock to build the necessary mass support for this campaign. Earlier this summer, at a sunrise rally in Washington, D.C., U.S. Representative Jamal Bowman of the New York 16th Congressional District was one of the many politicians who showed passionate support for Good Jobs for All. We got people from all over the country, the Northeast, the Midwest, the South, our West. This is a movement. This is a movement. I am here because of the movement. And it's not just a national movement, it's an international movement. But as we know, all politics is local. So I want to take us back to my district, New York's 16th Congressional District, where we just defeated a 31-year incumbent because of the Sunrise Movement. But here's the deal, here's the truth of the matter. I represent the Bronx, I represent Mount Vernon, and I represent Yonkers. Shout out to Yonkers. And a big shout out to New Rochelle. So, I represent other areas as well, but I want to focus on these areas for a moment. Because these are the areas where the racial injustice, the economic injustice, and the environmental injustice continues to live and breathe in our country. These are the areas where COVID 
ravaged my district because of the comorbidities that exist due to the climate crises and environmental racism. These are the areas where public housing continues to crumble because the federal government has not given a dime to public housing in 10 years. These are the areas where our public school infrastructure continues to fall apart because it's 100 years old. These are the areas where children are living with lead paint and, and developing cognitive difficulties because they live with lead paint and we're not doing a damn thing about it. This is the area where Robert Moses built the Cross Bronx Expressway that destroyed the Bronx that now has people inhaling these fumes that are leading to asthma, upper respiratory illness, and horrible qualities of life. Now, I love my entire district, but I need to contrast Yonkers, Mount Vernon, New Rochelle, and the Bronx to Starsdale, Mamaroneck, Ryan, Bronxville. Because if you live in my district and you're white, you're more likely to be wealthy, you're more likely to go to fully funded you're less likely to have asthma, and you're more likely to have green, beautiful places to hang out, play, and live. That shit ain't right. So, I am unapologetic. I ran for office to represent those who have been marginalized, neglected, and disenfranchised in my district. What I want people to always remember is that there is reason to hope and that there is reason to be optimistic that we can make our world a better place. The fact that we, we look around and we see that the systems all around us are broken and are failing us and are causing incredible suffering can be true at the same time as the thought that we can change it. I encourage everyone listening to imagine. Just think about the imagination you had as a kid and imagine what the world could be like and just know that we can get there and we will get there. Thank you for listening to Wake Up New York, a Sunrise NYC podcast. We're your hosts, Jenna Tapaldo and Paola Sanchez, and we produce this episode with Frankie James Albin, Natalie Bartfay, Hillary McDonald, and Jilly Edgar. Special thanks to Representative Espayat, Professor Matt Huber, Mia, and Vikas for speaking to us. We are also continuing to put pressure on politicians, and we're growing our team in the fight for good jobs for all. You can join us by signing up for our Slack on our website. To learn more about Sunrise NYC, visit us online at sunrise-nyc.org. And you can learn more about the Good Jobs for All campaign at goodjobsforallpledge.org.